Well, in 2005, the Texas Longhorn football team was 10-0. Yeah, I'm coming. We're coming. They were 10-0, and they came to rivalry week against Texas A&M. And, and, and I know you want to whoop right now, but Texas A&M was having a rough season that year. They were about 5-5, five and five, and they weren't, in 2005, they weren't making a bowl game. And so, huge game for the University of Texas. They were undefeated. They were ranked second in the country. And what was looming was a showdown between USC and Texas the following week if Texas could beat A&M, their rival. All the media that week was just talking only about Texas, right? And only about this matchup that might come with USC in the national championship game. And Mac Brown tells the story late in the week. Late in the week, Mac Brown tells a story about getting, his call, getting a call from his old college coach, Bill Parcells. If you know football, sorry ladies, if you know football, Bill Parcells is a legendary Hall of Fame coach. Coached for the Giants and Cowboys, won some Super Bowls, but he was a no-nonsense kind of coach. And Mac Brown tells a story and says, listen, answers the phone, Bill Parcells doesn't say hello. He only says, coach, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I've been listening all week, and all anybody wants to talk about are the Texas Longhorns and the USC Trojan, Trojans, and nobody's talking about Texas A&M. They're your rival, and you're not even talking about them. You're not even seemingly thinking about them and preparing for them. They're your rival. And then he says this, part and only a way Bill Parcells can say, you're like that big rat Eating the poison cheese, you're gonna die. <laughs> Mac Brown gets off the phone. This is his mentor, coach. He gets off the phone and he prints out pictures of cheese and he puts them in the locker room on every locker and it says, Don't eat the poison cheese to his players. And his coaches, because they had gotten so fixated on themselves, they had gotten so fixated on what might be two weeks later, three weeks later, and they'd forgotten their opponent, their enemy for the week, their rival, Texas A&M. The passage we come to today in Nehemiah, you see the people of God almost done with the wall, like they've done everything except hang the doors. The ribbon cutting is probably already scheduled on the wall being completed. They're almost done. And you come to this text, but the enemy takes one more shot. The enemy takes another shot, and one of the most devastating kinds of enemies are the enemies that are almost defeated because those enemies will do anything to win. They are dangerous. They are desperate. They're going to take one more shot. Notice if you've been with us in the book of Nehemiah, they've been taking shots all the way through it. The enemies of God who's come against the work of God for God's glory have come against them and they've tried all kinds of schemes and tactics. But now what they're going to try to do is take off the head, cut off the head. They're coming after Nehemiah as they've had success, as they've almost completed the wall. Isn't that the way the enemy works in our lives? Did you know that most people fall, believers in Jesus, they fall not when they're hurting, not when something's wrong. Usually they fall nine times out of 10 when everything is good, when there is success on the horizon. This morning, I wanna show you in Nehemiah chapter six, turn there with me, Nehemiah chapter six, one through 14, page 401, 
in the Bible next to you. Um, if you've got a Bible with you, uh, Nehemiah 6, 1 through 4. Man, bring your Bibles. We open our Bibles. These are long passages. I want you to see it for yourself. Maybe get it on your phone. Make sure you're on your phone, on your Bible, right? Bring your Bibles. Let's engage in God's Word so you see it, right? Bring it. Um, as you turn there, just a reminder, if you're newer with us, your first time you're like, hey, we're stepping into Nehemiah 6, let me just give you a touch of background of where we've been in the book of Nehemiah. We see Nehemiah's heart to go and repair the walls that are not haven't been repaired in 140 years because the walls of a city represents its protection. And they've already, Ezra's already gone back in, remember, and he's built the house of God, but the wall is protection for Jerusalem. And so he's serving as a cupbearer before King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, the conquering king in the not-so-free world, and he goes before the king boldly through prayer and asks if he can leave and go back to his native home in Jerusalem and rebuild the wall. God had called him to rebuild the wall, and so he goes before him. Artaxerxes pays the tab for this deal and sends him out and sends another group of exiles out back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And the moment he gets there, there's opposition. There's opposition for the clans around Jerusalem. See, also today, there's opposition against God's people all around, how do they deal with it? They see opposition on the outside that comes against them. They see opposition on the inside because of fear from the threats and discouragement. And then they, last week we said, we saw opposition from within because they were ex financially exploiting one another so much so that the people of God were about to go on a strike. So there's been opposition to the call of God all the way through in Nehemiah. Lest we think that God calls us to himself and calls us to the unfinished task of the Great Commission, and then it's just going to be smooth sailing. Understand in Nehemiah, there will be opposition. The enemy will come against the work of God. Any place, any time, the work of God exists. Any place, any time, the glory of God's estate, the enemy will be there. And we see these little minions effectively, right, in Nehemiah, but understand that there is an enemy behind this enemy that we see in this book, and it's Satan himself. It's Satan himself. He comes against God's people. So let me ask you, Christian, many of you, are you ready for the enemy's schemes? The evil one has schemes. Do you look past the enemy? Do you just kind of see Satan as that cartoon that doesn't really exist? Or do you understand that there are schemes? Do you understand that the evil one, although a defeated foe is dangerous, do you understand the prince of the power of the air comes to kill, steal, and destroy? He wants you to go down. But here's the question, what are his methods? If you're going into battle, actually the Lord is the one that fights for us, but we're going into this, what are his methods and how does the enemy fight? That's what you're gonna see in today's text. You're gonna see ways in which the enemy comes at you just like he came at Nehemiah and the people of God back then. How does he come to us now? And here's a better thought. How do we respond? Much to learn this morning from Nehemiah and how he responds to the threats, how he responds to the schemes ultimately of the evil one. So let me just tell you, we got three types of poison cheese this morning. Three types of poison cheese I want to show you, and then I want you to notice really clearly and closely how Nehemiah responds to the schemes of the evil one. Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 4. Let me read it. 
Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom and Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach, meaning filled the breaches in, left it, parentheses, although up to that time I had not set up the doors to the gate, so he's almost done. Sanballat and Gershom sent me saying, come, let us meet together in the plain of Ono, and they intended to do me harm. Notice the discernment. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I, I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? And they sent to me four times. They're persistent in this way. And I answered them four times in the same manner. Here's what Nehemiah is saying to the enemy. He's saying, and I'm saying to us, one of the first schemes, one of the first poison cheese is this. The enemy wants to distract you from the work of God. He wants to distract you from the work of God. We've got to stay on point. Do you see that in the text? That's what the enemy here wants to do to Nehemiah, to distract him, to lure him out. Uh, remember, he's at the end of the project. The ribbon cutting is, is happening. Success is within grasp. But look at the invitation. Does it seem kind of innocent to you? Just come meet with us. This is like political softball. This is what's happening. Just come meet with us. I can imagine it being, if, the, if there's more to this conversation with these messengers, I can imagine it being like this. Hey, Nehemiah, we got off on the wrong foot. I know we've been trying to kill your plans, but, but you know, you're, you're, you're successful now. It looks like the, the walls, so, so how can we be neighbors? It's a lure. They ask him to come out to the plains of Ono that's north of Jerusalem. This is a place like you would go outside the city. This is a place you'd go like vacation. There's nobody out there, it's remote if you like that. If you're an introvert and you wanna go on vacation and wanna see anybody, this is where you're going. It's a beautiful plain. He noticed something. He didn't say, hey, let's meet in the, in the middle of Jerusalem. They're intentionally trying to lure him out of safety to meet with him. They mean him as Nehemiah discerns, what does it say? Harm. Nehemiah picks up. How can he not? Maybe he's understood over the course of the last few chapters how these guys have worked. But this is an enemy who wants to distract. And notice the response of Nehemiah. He doesn't just come out and say, I know what you're doing. You're evil. You're trying to kill me. Kind of a political response a little bit. He's not going to ruffle feathers any more than he needs to. What does he do? Thank you very much for the invitation. But I'm doing a great work. I'm not leaving. Thank you. Here you go. Did you notice that? He's doing the work of God. He's staying. He's saying, I'm going to stay on point. He doesn't need to go down the rabbit trail of what they're actually up to. He just moves on, and you've seen this over and over and over. But they are what? They are persistent. So the leader of God who's doing the work of God has to say no, 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 no. Over and over and over. You see this persistence. See, listen, in the midst of success, even in the work of God, the enemy wants to distract us from the unfinished work of making disciples, from the unfinished work of God. 
Notice in the Bible, over and over and over again, it's usually when things are going well that the people of God or the leader of God falls. See also David. Do you remember David? He was like 10 and 0 in war, okay? He's 10 and 0, and he decides to do what? He decides to go to the palace because the men of God have it. They're going to go to battle. I don't need to be there because we're that good. And he leaves and he goes where he shouldn't be, at the palace, away from most of the people. But he looks down and he sees a lady bathing. And he goes further into what, where he shouldn't be. See, this is how the enemy works. You've got to pay attention. He wants to distract us and he often does that when things are going well. Can I ask you about personal temptations that you have? Are you realistic about Satan's intentions for distraction in your life? Are you realistic about your own weaknesses? Satan knows your kryptonite. He knows where you are weak. He makes it a point. He doesn't know all things, but he watches and learns you. What's your kryptonite? How is he maneuvering to distract you and deceive you like he did David, like he could have done Nehemiah right here? How do you respond? Here's a good one. How do you respond when someone asks you to go somewhere or do something that you know is against the word of God? Teenagers, when your boyfriend or girlfriend says, if you love me, you will do this. We will have sex, and it'll be great. You know it's against the word of God. What do you do in business when people are trying to cut corners, and you know it's against the word of God and the moral ethic of the word of God? Do you do it? Do you go along? But there's broader points. There's lots of distractions we have, some of them not just straight evil, some distractions we have to the great work of God are a little bit different. They're good. They're even things that we might talk about from a pulpit or engage in in our lives that aren't primary but are secondary, but they become primary. I'm all for political engagement, but that's not who the church primarily is. That's not why you're primarily here. You can convince somebody of your political position, and they're still lost as a goose. Sorry, this is West Texas stuff. I don't know. It just comes out and people look at me funny. I don't know where, where are you from, man? Tertiary, secondary things. Be involved. That's not your primary mission in life. Important, but not primary. Social justice, charity work, all these are good things. Even theological nuance that takes over to how you think and what you believe. How about this? None of y'all are distracted by this, are you? I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, to the neglect of my family, of my marriage, of my children, of my preparation for Sunday morning. How about you? And better yet, what do we do with it? What do we do with the things that distract us from the work of God? What are the things Rhetorically speaking, what are the things in your life? Ask yourself this question. What are the things in your life that distract you 
from relationship with God, from the work of God? What are those things in, in your life? And one of the realities is, and the reality, one of the realities is, is this. There's an apathy that can run through our bones, even as believers in Jesus, that it's not necessarily about those things. It's actually really more of a spiritual issue in our lives, right? It's more about, I value functionally other things more than I do my walk with Jesus and my church and coming on Sunday and serving and giving and being a part of the work of God. And that's deeper than all these external things that I just mentioned. And so maybe we need to take evaluation of our hearts. I know I do. Evaluation of what the distractions are in our lives that distract us and move us away from the work of God. First lure is distraction, but Nehemiah stays on point. He stays on point and keeps working, and it's unsuccessful. But look at the second lure. Look at the second kind of poison cheese here. It's political hardball, and it's dirtier, and it's going to get dirtier here. Verse 5 through verse 9. Check it out with me. Verse 5, in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, see that? Sent his servants to me with an open letter, meaning this letter is getting circulated. Lots of people are going to see it in his hand. It's written, it's reported amongst the nation. Notice how vague that is. And Gershom also says it, he's another enemy of the people of God, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. This is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, he's talking about King Artaxerxes, and now the king will hear these reports. The king of Persia will hear the reports that you want to be king and y'all want to be rebellious. That's a nasty rumor. So now come back to Ono, come back to the plain, plain of vacation, and let's take counsel together, meaning I got you. Now you got to come to the table. Then I said to him, love this, look at this response, saying, no such thing is true as you have said has been done, for you are inventing these things out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work of God and it will not be done. But now, it's a prayer, oh God, strengthen our hands. You've seen it before, you see it again here. Prayer, strengthen our hands from our enemies. Can I tell you the, the second thing that the enemy wants to do? It's this. The enemy wants to discredit you and discourage you from the work of God. You've got to move past the spin you got to move past the spin and the rumors. Do you see this propaganda here? This is political hardball. It's disinformation, real disinformation. That's what's going on. They question Nehemiah's motive for doing what he's doing. Do you see it? That he wants to rebel. Here's why they're doing this. I mean, there's a lot of reasons they're doing this. But if you remember back in Ezra chapter 4, this kind of ploy was successful. This is exactly what these same guys in Ezra 4 said to King Artaxerxes that made King Artaxerxes issue a decree that the building of the wall would stop. So this ploy has already been successful before. It's a rumor. It's not true. None of it's true. And yet he's trying to create fear in Nehemiah's heart. 
with this awful rumor. It's nefarious, but it's a genius way to try to get what he wants. Maybe this will work now. But look at how Nehemiah responds. I think they think, man, checkmate, right? Now you gotta meet with us. How does he respond to that? Do you see it there? He says, this is a lie. So there is a direct comment that he makes through a messenger. He doesn't even go to them. He doesn't pay them that much attention. He functionally ignores their spin, sends someone else. He's not going there. And he says, you're lying. Not only you're lying, you're just making this up in your mind. Again, do you see his discernment and his wisdom in the situation that he has been put in? But understand something. If you've ever had a rumor circulate against you and it's been amongst people, whether it's in the church or whether it's outside the church or in your job or in your school kids, how does that feel? It hurts. Where does Nehemiah take his hurts? Notice the text. He took his hurts to God. And he prayed that God, and this is the second or third time that Nehemiah's done this, he prayed that God would deal with them. You know what I do? <laughs> Whenever there's something against me, I've been in the church for a while, this happens inside the church too, not just out there, it hurts. And you know what I tend to do? I tend to go to the person at least and say, because I'm, I'm a fighter. And I say it's wrong, and here's what's wrong. But you know what I do between that, between going to God? There's this long, big thing that I do usually that's not right between going to God and expressing my heart to God. I'm going to clear my name. You going to clear your name? Think about rumors against you. I'm going to go clear my name. I'm going to go to all the people and make sure they believe in me. I'm going to not only tell them they're wrong, I might even spread a rumor about them. That's me and my flesh. That's how I want to respond. Do you see that Nehemiah doesn't do any of that? He deals with it directly, and then he lays his burden at God's feet. That's what he does. Oh, to be like Nehemiah. To go, God, you've got to deal with this. I trust you with this. Also trust you if they go and tell King Artaxerxes that you've got us because you've called us to this. What do you do when people try to discredit you and do discourage you. What do you do with that? Nehemiah takes it to the Lord and he leaves all his burdens at the feet of God. Man, I don't know what kind of false rumors have ever circulated against you, but the context of this rumor, it's outside, but it's amongst you know, a leader of God. And I could bore you with stories inside and outside the church as a leader of God that you don't probably want to hear about, that I talk about like when I'm mowing the lawn and my wife is like, hey, who are you yelling at, you know? Or taking my punching bag and in the, in the cave, that's my son's, and, and hitting the punching bag because of these things. But you have stories too, I would assume, of false rumors that have come against you. How do you deal with that? How does it make you feel? What do you do with it? And many of you, many of you in the church, I look around this room, and many of you in the church have been in leadership in a church, 
maybe full-time, even leadership in the church, part-time. You've served and served and served. And you've had things that come against you and you're like, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. I just want to serve Jesus. And somebody wants something in the church. And so there's a rumor that shows up and they say this happened. And you're hurt and you're discouraged. And what tends to happen in the midst of that is that as we take it to the Lord, it's just this weight that stays on us for ages and ages. And what it makes us want to do from personal experience, and I know sitting down with many of you too, it just makes you not want to show up on Sunday. It makes you not want to serve. It makes you not want to be in community with other believers because you've been hurt. And what, God, and what I think is demonstrated here, and God would say, is this. It's a great work. It's still a great work, whether people have hurt you or not. Broken people hurting broken people. It's still a great work. Come back. Get off the sidelines. Does Satan have you distracted? Does Satan have you discredited and discouraged? Discouragement is one of the main reasons people stop coming to church, people stop serving, people get out of ministry. Discouragement. And it's usually from some kind of functional discrediting. And Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care how he can put you on the bench. He wants to put you on the bench. Whether it's distraction or whether it's discrediting, he wants you on the bench. I think there's some interesting principles, I would say, from this text to understand rumors. I mean, are, are, are you listening? Are you, you guys, I assume, are on your apps and your, your TV and listening to, like, there is a war going on in the Middle East, but there's also a communications war going on in the Middle East, isn't there? What's true and what's not true? I mean, what's disinformation on social media and what's not? We live in a complicated world of disinformation. We live in a complicated world because we're like, I don't know exactly what's true, so maybe I shouldn't post. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know for sure. But look at this text. There's a couple things I want to give you, just practical principles about rumors, whether they're coming against you or whether you're starting them with others. All right? I mean, that's what God's word says even to us. Six things that the Lord hates. Proverbs 6, right? No seven, right? Lying lips, haughty eyes. Hands shedding blood. You know the rest of them are false, bearing false witness against one another, sowing discord amongst the people of God. Rumors go both ways, don't they? But here are some principles that may help you as you are frustrated with something or may when they come against you. Rumors have no source or a source that's not legitimate. Do you see that in the text? The people of the nations are saying. And even Gershom, who's Gershom? He's the enemy. He's been against Nehemiah the whole time. Rumors don't have a legit source. You see that? Also about rumors, take note, rumors involve exaggeration or inaccuracy. Do the people of God want to rebel? No. Do the people of God want their own place? Where they're not enslaved, sure. But they're not rebelling here. It's interesting, in this text, Sanballat is saying, you wanna be king of Judah. And here's, your, here's a thought. He's the governor of Judah, and he's waiting on the king of Judah. The ultimate Messiah, 
king. So there will be a king of Judah. So there's exaggeration. There's inaccuracy to what they're saying. There's kernels sometimes even of truth. Third one is this. Rumors are designed to hurt people for personal gain. When you look at a rumor, ask the question, what do they stand to gain out of what they're saying before you determine that it's true or not? What do they stand to gain out of this? Do you think these guys stand to gain something? Yeah, the wall stops. The work on the wall stops. They're trying to stop Nehemiah from finishing the wall because they want power. That's what's happening. Last, rumors are often shared by rumor mongers who choose the wrong setting and the wrong context to push the rumor out. Do you notice that in the text? Open letter. Open letter means I'm circulating this rumor. Take those to heart. So discrediting, discouragement, distraction, that's the poison cheese so far. Nehemiah doesn't take the bait, does he? He moves past the spin. That's hard to do. But the last poison cheese is maybe the most devious. Look at verses 10 through 14. You see it here? Verse 10 through 14 says this. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, Delilah, no, Delilah, son of, you know, who was confined in his home. I needed to work on that. I, somebody even gave me one of those books to learn how to pronounce things. Who was confirmed, who's confined in his home. He said, let us meet together so this is Shemaiah, a priest, who's in his home. It looks like he's confined in his home, probably sick. So guess what? The shepherd, Nehemiah, is going to visit his friend. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. This guy's a priest. Nehemiah's not a priest. Let us close the doors of the temple. Here's why all this is happening. Here's why I want to do this. For they are coming to kill you. So there's a threat or a supposed threat that Shemaiah is saying there is. They are coming to kill you by night. But notice Nehemiah's response. But I said, should such a man as I run away? Love that. And what man such as I could get, go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy, a false prophecy, against me because Tobiah and Sanballat hired him. This is his friend who's come against him and schemed against him to kill him. He's been paid off. I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. Nehemiah sees what he's asking him to do as sin so that they could give me a bad name. This is the motivation, a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat. Oh my God, according to the things they did and also the prophetess Nodai and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Here's the third thing, and this is a devious plan. It's the enemy wants to disqualify you from the work of God. He wants to disqualify you from the work of God. You've got to be discerning. Shimei, the prophet, a friend, paid off by Sanballat, Tobiah, to make up a story to produce fear in Nehemiah that fear would cause him to be a coward, to run away. He can't be a coward. That's not toxic masculinity. This is a man who is, who is the leader of the people of God. He's got to stand up to his enemies. He's got to be wise, but he's got to stand up to his enemies. But most importantly, Shemaiah wants Nehemiah, a leader who's not a priest, to do what? You see it there? 
He wants him to hide, but not only hide anywhere, hide in the temple. Do you see the word within the temple? Who, according to the word of God, the law of God, who can go into the inner courts of the temple? Who can go into the temple? Nehemiah is not a priest. He is not allowed to go into the temple. Shemaiah can go into the temple because he's a priest. In the Old Testament, the punishment for going into places that you're not supposed to go in the temple is punishment of death. So here's the ploy to disqualify him. I'm going to let the people of God kill Nehemiah because he's going to do something he's not supposed to do. Pretty clever. You see it? But look at how Nehemiah responds. I'm not going to hide. And I'm surely not going to hide there. It's sin. Do you see how discerning Nehemiah is? Listen, I believe discernment is a spiritual gift in the New Testament, a gift of the Holy Spirit. But discernment is not separated from knowing and understanding and believing the Word of God. He knows the Word. He knows it well enough to know he's not supposed to be in the temple. Discernment and the Word of God go together. Remember Jesus? He's gone out to the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. What does the evil one do? He comes to him in his weakness, physical weakness, and he gives him a temptation of the flesh. Hey, if you're hungry, turn the stones bread to bread. What? How does Jesus respond to all three temptations of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life to the evil one? How does he respond? The word of God. The word of God. He knows the word of God. The word of God and spiritual discernment go hand in hand. Do you know and believe both? Do you know the word of God and believe the word of God well enough and deep enough to be biblically discerning with the enemy's temptations and schemes? someone asks you to do something, again, that violates God's word, it's sin, it's wrong. Convincing yourself that something that the word of God reveals to you and me is right because I feel a certain way is wrong. Believe that. Satan loves to use this kind of scheme with us. You know why? Because my flesh is a great defense lawyer to my sin. But it's okay because this, this, and this. Are you walking close enough to God and his word to have the biblical discernment that Nehemiah has here so that sin won't disqualify you? The enemy wants to disqualify you from the work of God, but we must be discerning. And the primary way in which you're discerning is knowing and believing and trusting and seeing God's word as sufficient Sufficient in your marriage, fellas. Sufficient in your marriage, ladies. Sufficient in your parenting. Sufficient in what you believe. Sufficient as you look at a culture that is given over to sexual sin to say, I love the sinner, but the sin is wrong. I'm not celebrating it. I'll walk with you. But what's required is a turning to the way of Jesus, not a celebration of lifestyle and sin in all of our lives that is wrong. 
See, the enemy wants to disqualify us. We've got to be discerning. Distracted, discredited, discouraged, disqualifying. Satan wants to put you on the bench, just like he wanted to put Nehemiah on the bench. Let me finish that Mac Brown story and we'll be done. Halftime of the game, playing AM. Sorry, Ags. AM's winning. They're five and five. They're not going to bowl. This is their bowl. This saves their season and their coach's job, maybe. Maybe not. Can't remember. Y'all can tell me. Mac Brown comes in to the locker room. They're down. Texas is down 29 24. Mac Brown walks into the locker room and says, Now listen, we're going to win this game. We're going to win this game. We're not going to die, but we've been sick off that poison cheese. We're sick off that poison cheese. We need to wake up. And Texas went out and won the game, 40 to 29, and the rest is history. They went and played USC and won the Rose Bowl, won the national championship game. We can't sit around and eat the poison cheese, C3. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say everything's fine. We live in wartime, spiritual wartime. How's Satan doing with you? How's Satan doing with me? Are you a little sick off the poison cheese of distraction, of discrediting, of discouragement, of disqualification, your takeaway today? And they were confused in the back when I gave it to them today. Don't eat the poison cheese. <laughs> with distraction, we've got to see through. We've got to stay on point. We've got to know when to press into things and know when to just keep moving as a church. Man, that, 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 that preaches in today's world in the last three years. We gotta stay on point. We gotta stay centered on the truth of the gospel and who Christ is. There's all kinds of ditches. I don't care if it's mask or race or social justice or sexuality. We stay on point. We can't be distracted. We can't be discredited or discouraged, we've got to ignore the spin. And with that weight, if you've got it, if you've got weight because of hurts in ministry or hurt in church, you've got to lay it on the Lord and let him take care of it. And sometimes you've got to keep laying it on the Lord because you just want to scratch that wound and open it back up. You've got to leave it with the Lord. And last, with disqualification, You've got to be in God's word. Listen, I'm not a legalist to say, you've got to read three chapters a day. You've got to, you've got to do this, this, and this. But I'm going to tell you, if you're not in this book, it's not just a book. It's not just a literary book. This is the word of God. It's for you. It's empowered by the spirit of God to change your heart, to change your mind. You need to be meeting with God if you want to be discerning about the schemes of the evil one. Be in God's word. But here's the truth, because it kind of feels maybe today you're like, man, the enemy's big. I'm helpless. You're not helpless. Notice in this text and all the way through Nehemiah, it's God who fights for him. It's God who fights for Nehemiah. It's God who fights for you. He's fighting the spiritual battle. In many places in the New Testament, you're not really the one in the midst of the battle. It's God who's fighting for you. It's the heavenly realm that's fighting for you. Not only that, we have prayer. What does Nehemiah pray every time the opposition comes against him? What does he pray? Strengthen our hands. Give us strength to carry on. 
with the unfinished work, that's your prayer. That's my prayer. But there's something cool, and I'm going to finish here. There's something cool when I look back, when I pan out from chapters 4 through chapter 6. Because it's all about opposition. It's all about these guys, these minions. It's all about opposition also from within, the discouragement and the fear, and also sin that's in the camp. Somebody needs to make Nehemiah like a good movie. Where's Jake Allen? Where's he at? He's somewhere. We need a good movie for Nehemiah because there's so much drama and plot. It looks like all the way through chapter four through six that they're gonna fall, that the, the work is gonna stop and they're not gonna finish, but God comes through every single time, every single device the enemy has, God comes through. Some of you older folks, some of you older saints, you know Looney Tunes, kids, you know Looney Tunes? You're like, where are you going, man? Looney Tunes, Coyote and Roadrunner. That's what I think, chapter four to chapter six. Coyote is the trickster. He's the guy that's trying to get Roadrunner the whole time, all his devious schemes to kill him and eat him. He never, ever succeeds. Roadrunner, beep, beep, always gets away. When I look at these chapters, I'm like, God's people get away because they're doing the work of God. He protects, God protects us. He cares for us. He's bigger than the enemy. Do you believe that? I've talked a lot about the enemy today, but God is the one who fights for you. God is the one who protects you. God is the one who strengthens you through his spirit. Do you believe that? He's got you for the fight. And ultimately, in the end, in a way, Sam Ballot and these guys are right about their rumor. It's just not Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah is not the king of Judah. But Jesus is. And the greater Nehemiah is Jesus who comes. And he dies on a cross to forgive you and me for our sins. And here's the beauty he will reign. He is reigning, and he will reign over all the kingdoms of the world. That is your hope. That is my hope. He will put the enemy under his foot. That's the promise of Jesus one day. We'll get into it when we get to the book of Revelation in a few months. The hope of Christ is that he is the king of Judah, and he, will, he has come. He's died for your sins. Do you know him? He will rule and reign forever. Let me pray.